Hello, and welcome to On Tap, a theater and performance studies podcast. I am Panel Camp of Washington University in St. Louis. Uh, I am joined, uh, as always, by Harvey Young. Harvey, you're holding up the book that we are going to be talking about in our first segment. No, um, I was just waving. You're just waving. Book, I was just book waving. <laughs> it's a great. You. It's a it's a great great <laughs> book, and we'll get into into it. Harvey, your your classes have just started. Is that right? So you're in the swing of things. That's right. We started yesterday, so today is day two. And I am joined by Sarah Bay Jung of Bowdoin College. Uh, Sarah, you are not in your first day of the term, right? Are you keeping up with things? Are you still feeling the excitement? Only the excitement of being constantly uh, trying to keep up with my students. Uh, I'm teaching a class in musical theater, and you know, I think I come in knowing a lot, and inevitably there are folks in there who know more than I do. So it's it's uh, it's some good conversations, but a, but a challenge for sure. Yeah, they these these young students have so much energy, so much energy, and so much Google, so much the Google, right? <laughs> it's like the information overflow at every at any given moment is really it's it's intense. But we're doing good stuff with it. They're great, so I can't complain. This edition of the podcast, we are going to talk about Jessica Burson's book, The Naked Result, How Exotic Dancing Became Big Business, which shared the ATHA Outstanding Book Prize for 2016 with Branislav Jekyllslavik's Alienation Effects. So we will talk about Jessica Burson's book. We are going to talk about Confederate monument removal, the uh, white nationalist rally August 12th in Charlottesville has drawn renewed attention to a nationwide pattern of removing monuments to the Confederacy. We wanted to talk about what the performance studies implications are of this phenomenon. And finally, TAPS TV, uh, following on a suggestion from a listener at the end of last academic year, we're going to talk about our favorite television shows and try to work in some performance studies insights into those. Before we get to those topics, a few news items to round up. There's a new book series that has been uh, announced, Thinking Through Theater. I believe that this is by Bloomsbury Press, and so people shopping around book projects should take a look at that. It seems very interesting. Speaking of Bloomsbury, I will go ahead and and plug that I believe the Cultural History of Theater, the six-volume opus that covers from ancient to contemporary theater, according to several different categories of cultural production, um, is about to be released. In fact, I think the official release date is September 21st. Guys, I think we'll, we'll have to do a topic on this. Um, it's kind of a, an interesting publishing event in the field. Um, it's a lot of reading, I- though. It's a, it's a lot of reading. Well, I think I think we'll... We'll each take like two volumes. Yeah, I don't know to, if we're even doing to, that. I, to work I, through. I think we can each, A, if we can get, you know, review copies of them, we can just sort of like, I'm just going to hold three volumes on either side of my head and sort of shake the feeling of the knowledge into it. Um, uh, but, but keep your eyes out for that. And I'm sure that we will have some things to talk about um, regarding that on the podcast. 
There was at University of North Carolina um, a major gift. Um, a benefactor of the university gave $12 million to split between UNC Playmakers, which is the resident company at UNC Chapel Hill, and the UNC Department of Dramatic Art. We should all be the beneficiaries of such benevolence. Friend of the podcast, Jennifer Parker Starbuck, announced that she is taking a new job. She um, will be starting at Royal Holloway University of London as head of department. Um, I actually I failed to notice when that's happening. Is, is she going to start that job next year? I believe she starts that in the uh, in the spring. Regardless, that's very exciting. Congratulations to Jennifer. Uh, finally, the Theater Library Association announced its award winners for the two book prizes that they give out every year. Peter Bene's book, For a Short Time Only, Itinerance and the Resurgence of Popular Culture in Early America, received one of those awards. And then Bill Paul, my colleague here at Washington University, is also winning a, a prize for When Movies Were Theater, Architecture, Exhibition, and the Evolution of American Film. I will give just a little plug for this book because I think it's it's really exciting. Bill is a historian of film, and this is a detailed, extensive study of theater architecture in early 20th century America and the ways that as film became an increasingly popular entertainment medium, it was fitted into playhouses and the way that movie house architecture was very much in line with theater architecture, as you would expect. I think this is a great project in part because it has always bugged me about um, film scholarship that it sort of imagines its history as beginning with chemical photography and then, you know, quickly sort of resolves into medium specific analyses of how screenal media work. And of course, we all in theater know that practices of spectatorship, architectural uh, practices, dramaturgy, all of these things feed directly into popular film. Anything else that you guys want to mention? Well, there's a new job at Northwestern, right, that was just announced. Yes. Well, we're hiring across performance studies and theater, uh, five tenure track positions. Uh, so uh, there's one in uh, ethnomusicology, uh, cross-listed with AFAM studies. Another one's gonna be in African diaspora sto- studies, that's solely in performance studies. Uh, within theater, there will be a tenure track line in lighting design, also one in musical theater, and another one in acting slash directing. Work with fabulous people at, at Northwestern. Along the lake, um, along the lake. Yes. There you go. And you're getting that, the, you know, your fancy new building. Your, yes. Like, new center. So it sounds great. I am and looking Marley at the lake Schweitzer. right now as I'm talking with you. Oh well, there you go. And Marley Schweitzer wanted us to mention uh, Department of Theater, School of the Arts, Media, Performance, and Design at York University, and Toronto has a, a position for Indigenous Theater and Performance Studies. Great. So let's move on to our first topic. We read Jessica Burson's book, The Naked Result, How Exotic Dancing Became Big Business. This was published last year by Oxford University Press. It's a terrific read. There's so much to say about it that's interesting. Uh, Harvey is waving his copy back and forth through the air like he just doesn't care. Um, He's dancing uh, with it, really. I think it's more of a, a, you know, Harvey's... Uh, embodiment of the material. There's so much to talk about this book that's really interesting. I, I will just say that I, I found it such a pleasure to read. Jessica Burson's prose is extremely pleasurable. And it's it's not just that she's 
able to craft a good paragraph and a, and a good narrative, but it she really seems to be unencumbered by any of the really tricky aspects of this work. So the book is part analysis of the business of exotic dancing, uh, largely in, in strip clubs and, and sort of burlesque clubs and cabarets, those kinds of places. But it's centrally an autoethnography. It is partly her archival research, but it is very much a story of her own experience um, as a performer in these venues. And so besides just navigating what I I have always thought is an extremely difficult mode of writing where you're a participant observer giving a personal narrative, but also trying to remain in some sense objective. She's writing about sensitive topics. She's writing about sexuality, desire, the way that uh, strippers engage with the sexual desires of largely men. There's a kind of, you know, disreputable and I would say embarrassing quality to the topic that she deals with in such a confident and grounded and engaging way that I was really impressed. Um, and I'll, I'll say this also, that there's there are moments in the book where it's not just an autoethnography of um, the exotic dancing business, but it's also kind of an exotic, a kind of an, an autoethnography of academia. The introduction includes accounts of moments when she's in a job interview and someone interviewing her sort of asks with a kind of exasperation or in an almost dis- dismissive way, why should we care about this? And she just, she navigates the way that this becomes an, uh, a research topic for her with a lot of sophistication and aplomb. What I appreciated about this book, and and I'll confess I'm like two thirds the way through, but I'm reading it in order, <laughs> you know, so... Yeah, and, and I find the first two thirds to be fascinating, and then hopefully the last third is uh, equally fascinating. Uh, but it's it's this ability to write in a scholarly way that's rigorous and rich, and you know, and and uh, deeply informed by ethnography. Uh, but it also has trade potential. I mean, like the prose is just a joy to read, and it's uh, so vivid, and it's so uh, richly and thickly described in some ways. You know that uh, you feel like you are at what's it backstage bills bills backstage you know uh or diamond are these various places where she, where um uh, jessica burson has spent like where she spent a year um not only learning how to uh dance uh but also performing as exotic dancers so i thought that was really rich um and i also one more thing i guess i'll add uh, you know that that sense of the schizophrenia, I guess, that we all have as scholars, right? Where she's trying to figure out, is she first and foremost a researcher or a dancer, right? Um, and when she's facing um, an academic community, for example, uh, as opposed to the you know, co-workers who work in one of these establishments, you know, understanding how she, her loyalties are, are torn and split. And I thought that attention to just how complicated uh, and equally invested we are in these multiple parts of ourselves um, is something that I rarely see within scholarly publications, so I thought that was worthwhile. I think for me, some of the the best parts of the book are precisely those that that seemed unique unto itself and didn't necessarily remind me of other of other work. For example, she has a section, and I believe the the subtitle is "Why You Should Care About My Research." <laughs> yeah. And and I I mean I hit that point, and I I think I you know may have even laughed out loud because I think that is an implicit 
thing that we all strive for, <laughs> but in this kind of indirect way where let me tell you these things and you will find them so imminently fascinating that, you know, like that, that the, 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 the reason for this work, like it, it really justifies itself by the end of it. And, and, you know, she was not because of the subject matter uh, and the sort of status of it within, particularly within the academy, was not afforded that luxury or that privilege. And so she just lays out like, here's why you should care about it. And frankly, I now think I want every book to just say in very, <laughs> in a very concrete, succinct way, like, stop what you're doing. Here's how this matters to you. And the argument that she makes in terms of the ways in which corporatization and standardization changes all kinds of industries, the way in which we are shifting from a commodity-based economy to an affect and experience-based economy, the ways in which the human affection and, uh, and desires of all kinds are being turned into data and, and then sold back to us. Um, you know, I'm, I'm directing Love and Information in the spring. And so I'm, I'm kind of tempted to like have the students read excerpts of this book because I think there's something really key in this, what she calls the, not just the mixed stripping, but the Starbucksification of, of exotic dance is also something that I think you can see across many different areas. Uh, so that for me was really, was really exciting. The other thing that I took just a real delight in this book was about a third of the way through, it occurs to me that virtually everyone she's citing is female uh, or, or woman identified of, of one kind or another. And it has been a long time since I have read a book that worked within such a, a, a woman and female uh, dominated and feminine, right? I would even sort of stretch that a little further, a feminine dominated citational economy. And in fact, I felt like you know the like the male perspective on 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 stripping and exotic dance really enters in fairly late, <laughs> you know. And it was really it became kind of a non-issue. And, and in fact, if anything, like men as consumers of 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 this type of dance are fairly marginalized in the early sections of the book. And even then, they're they're kind of objectified. Yeah, I mean, part of the reason for that is that she's situating it in a. Um a tradition of feminist writing about performance art and perf feminist writing about sex work and pornography and prostitution. And so there's no reason why, you know, men can't be feminists, but there's, I think, the, the scholars who have tended to weigh in on these questions and the debates that she puts up front. I suppose it's mostly female scholars who have weighed in. Um, that, that's true, but I can, you know... I there are a number of books that are ostensibly feminist and, and do also engage in really rich feminist scholarship that also, you know, uh, buttress that with kind of like big men. Uh, yes, that sounds that's, a, that's a terrible, I'm really going to do terrible justice to metaphors <laughs> in dealing with this book. Um, clearly, but you know, this idea of like, like that goes, that works so far as it goes, but then we've got to at some point engage Foucault in a in a yeah. you know and and sort of point to some kind of significant uh, established preferably dead preferably European um, well you know man and 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 I just I mean if you look at the beginning of this book th that isn't that is not that's not what she's doing no, it's true. and she doesn't need to and I found that really refreshing no I I completely agree uh, and I think that you know, there's a few things going on here like one it's a way of taking sort of the core work that exists within dance criticism and dance scholarship, which in my estimation is has been 
led by pioneering um, women. And, and she cites them. You know, so there's, there's a moment where she lists from Susan Foster to Susan Manning and, and, and many others. So I think that like, that's happening. And what she's doing is she's uh, saying that this work that occurs in the area of dance history and dance criticism uh, has a much broader reach you know, into looking at everyday life, right? Uh, and then on top of that, you know, she is really making a defense around theorizing from the body. Uh, and, and that's an important move, right, to say that the materiality of one's uh, sort of physical uh, presence uh, sort of structures experience and that, you know, there's a claim for that uh, level of embodied writing, which is also an embrace of ethnography. So I think that's important. Uh, and then there's also a third level, which is sort of loosely tied into the, to, to the second one here, uh, which is to you know, call attention to the performance of affect and emotion, uh, often tied into positions that in many ways were thought of as being you know, women's jobs, right? So she talks about in one moment, the performance of emotion and affect you know, within, you know, waitresses and people in the service industries, you know, and I think that by doing that, she's really expanding outward to talk about how like an entire labor economy is, is premised upon a performance of emotion, but also, you know, a rigorous understanding of an embodied being. There's so much that you guys have brought up that I think is really fascinating, and we and we don't have time to delve into it all. But I will say, in response to Sarah's point, that I think it was it's partly because she sidesteps the male gaze debates. She doesn't dig into Laura Mulvey, Marianne Doan, and sort of the after debates about how male desire is structured in film. And I appreciate that. I mean, that's partly because those theorists go back to you know, Freud and Lacan. And so that's where a lot of this sort of like big men, as you, as you called them, show up um, in, in some of the feminist debates. I think it was good to see this debate separated from the sort of psychoanalytic theoretical discourse. But yeah, she does I, refer I, to that. I mean, you know, Mulvey makes it makes an appearance. I just but she doesn't you know, and maybe it's a just a it's a sort of testament to the field that, you, you know, you can it, you don't have to do that as as much or as as as, as you once did, right? I mean, I, and so that's not really. I don't mean to come off as a critique of 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 of, of other scholars uh, who have done that, myself included, um, but simply say that I think this this book comes at a particular moment that that for me as a reader felt very liberating in that it didn't have to do some of those same things. I agree. I agree. Can I can I just read very much very quickly though? Like so, you guys have both talked about the prose, and I would just like to. Re- I'm not even going to read an entire sentence, but I would I would just like to read part of the sentence to give folks who have not read this book a sense of 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 what she does, kind of rather cleverly, right? So this is on this is on page 92 in a in a section subtitled "Lap Dance as Performance and Product." She begins as a as a hybrid of performance and service work. The fourth wall isn't so much shattered as lovingly dissolved in a lap dance. And that's just the first part of that sentence, right? Then there's a comma and a whole second part that I won't take up too much time with. But that is like, yeah. I mean, when I hit like the the fourth wall is not shattered, it is lovingly dissolved. I was like, oh, this is, what a pleasure to read. What fun. Yeah, it's, it's funny, it's witty, and it's free, and it's really free of judgment or censoriousness with, with at this at the same time being critical and i think sharp-eyed about the ways that commodification corporatization is changing this art form um i will say also in terms of the gender men do appear prominently in this and they're not just the guys at the club but they're the they're the entrepreneurs and the impresarios the 
the Peter Stringfellows and the the men who are generating profits from this business. You know, one one thing I wanted to circle back to was how it functions as um, autoethnography. I've taught in the past, you know, introductions to performance studies and, you know, uh, Clifford Geertz, and, and I've taught, you know, as a sort of non-specialist about ethnography and thick description, but I really think that if I am going to teach that class again, I'd like to uh, assign at least a portion of her second chapter, because I think it really explains the the problems of the participant observer to students who may, on the one hand, be mystified by, you know, sort of older canonical texts like notes on a Balinese cockfight, but who also might be naive about how complicated it is to situate yourself in a cultural situation and then report on it at the same time. That sort of opens up to, I guess, what would be one of my criticisms of the book, which is that because the introduction is so good and because it is so extensive about, you know, making contact with the different debates that she's situating her project in, because there is this self-narration of scholarship, because there is also this sort of extensive framing of the autoethnography, the book seems like it sort of takes a while to get into its central project, though, of course, I wouldn't dispense with, with the writing that is in the, the first two chapters. I think it's excellent. But partly because it sort of is ramping up for a long time, there's less sort of space and time allowed for developing big arguments about what's going on, either in its sort of formalist critical sphere or the economic facets of the argument. So I wanted more. I wanted sort of bigger development of the of the later chapters, but it's only partly because I felt like everything that she was doing was so interesting. Why don't we move on into what will probably be a even more contestable topic, though that remains to be seen. Um, we, we wanted to talk about the wave of Confederate monument removals that are happening across the United States. We'll put these links up on the website, but the New York Times has a good feature going that identifies several dozen monument statues like the one that was removed from the park in Charlottesville. Um, some of which have been removed, some of which have just been proposed to be removed. As additional context, I should say it's not always mentioned, but my perception is that this movement really got started after the the murders of nine black congregation members in in Charlotte, South Carolina. So we wanted to talk about how this sort of intersects with a, a broad spectrum performance. Um, perspective. Um, I don't know, Harvey, you, you initially mentioned this topic in our discussions. Can you tell us a little bit more about what you were, what your, what questions it raised for you? Yeah, I mean, I, I think one of the things that unites us as sort of members of this podcast and the listening, and the listening community you know, is an awareness of how performance permeates everyday life, right? And, you know, we're conscious of how sort of social events and social actions um, can be understood and, and uh, read the frame of performance, but also how history itself gets framed and memorialized and, monumental, and monumentalized, I guess you would say, uh, uh, across time. You know, so when we have these moments in which there is a call, uh, but also the you know, execution of the act to remove the statue of Robert E. Lee, you know, or the question of, you know, uh, Jefferson Davis, does that statue go down? But then also more to the point, you know, where do you draw the line, right? Because it's like there's a series of, of debates going on at this moment about like, you know, do you remove the statue of George Washington, you know, who uh, 
you know, obviously own slaves and, and, and in many ways, you know, worked against, um, you know, any effort to liberate his slaves. Like, uh, uh, do you uh, change the names of a residential college that, like, like Yale did um, to go from uh, Calhoun and replace that um, legacy of a person who was a passionate uh, believer in slavery? You know, so I just felt like I wanted to take the, some time in this moment, you know, for us to reflect upon the present moment and to figure out, you know, what are the lines of acceptability in terms of when do we begin to remove longstanding historical monuments? So what are your thoughts? Well, in, in the context of performance, it, it raises an interesting question precisely of, of, you know, where are the sites of performance? And it seems like there are really, there are three, uh, maybe more, but there are three that are, I can see. One is the, the, um, the, the act of positioning a, a particular sculpture or naming a particular building right and and it's a it's this very particular kind of uh, architectural or structural performance in which there is a moment of emergence that is that it has a, a long durée, right it has yes. is very is, is is a sustained one right so that the presence of the statue itself right becomes a kind of ongoing performance in that some people read as you know, that is hearkening back to some kind of earlier intention. And whether that's about, you know, tradition or racism or articulating, right? So there's been a whole debate about when these statues went up. Yes. And in what context mm-hmm. and which ones were, you know, being, they were being cheaply made and mass produced precisely to justify Jim Crow laws, for example, Absolutely. across the South. Mm-hmm. Then there's a second side of performance, which is the encounter, right? When someone comes into the public space and encounters the statue or the building or is required to live in it, uh, you know, in the, in the case of Calhoun or may, and maybe others, uh, and somehow sees that act of participation in a way that further venerates um, the the person or the idea. Um, I mean, some of these statues are, are not named for particular people, right? Yes. They're just like the unknown soldier, or the un- unrecognized soldier. And then there's the, the third side of performance, which is the, the the contest, you know, which sort of, you know, to go back to Freitag, perhaps builds to some sort of climax or catastrophe and may or may not result in the in the literal falling action of the statue onto the ground, but is is sort of marked by this confront by this confrontation. And so I'm I'm struck by the different ways in which this conversation really evokes different sides re- re- needing to define the performance of a statue, right? Something that actually just sits there in very particular ways in order to make the case for its continuation or its removal and the ways in which we layer things on. And, and that for me has been a, a really it's fascinating to watch people's own performances. I guess maybe that would be the fourth is then the performance of justification or the performance of, you know, or I guess it would be in that contestation kind of moment. Mm-hmm. I mean, so, but, but what are your thoughts? Like, should the statues of Robert E. Lee come down? I personally, I say yes, but I think your question is a really good way to frame a discussion, Harvey, because you could imagine and, and frankly, this is an argument that is made on the right. I mean, this is what Donald Trump said repeatedly, basically, who's next? Is it George Washington? And so uh, you could imagine a sort of undesirable process, which was we're going we're gonna to evaluate every historical marker and plaque and statue and name of building and name of street, and we're going to hold them up to a standard that is 
codified and inflexible, and we're going to eliminate everything that doesn't meet a certain standard. And that, to me, would feel um, oppressive, even if I agreed with the standards that were being evoked. I mean, to me, a statue of Robert E. Lee or a monument like the one that was recently moved from Forest Park in St. Louis, which is explicitly dedicated to military men fighting for the Confederacy, I think that those should be removed because those are not monuments that are too, you know, to me, those are monuments that are divisive. Those are monuments to people who wanted to split the country apart and they wanted to split the country apart for a reason that was not noble. But, you know, you get into other questions. I mean, the names of streets we don't know, you know, we don't know who these people are <laughs> in whose space, symbolic spaces we're walking. So um, Michel Desserteau's essay, Walking in the City, which is in his Practice of Everyday Life, gets into the question of to what extent we really know what these symbols are and what our actual day-to-day interactions with them mean. You know, there's a there's a passage of, of this book that Rebecca Schneider has cited about the sort of indecipherability of, of, of monuments. And there's a portion of Walking in the City that I just want to read really quickly. And he's talking about city names in, or street names in Paris. So he says, what is it then that they spell out, disposed in constellations that hierarchize and semantically order the surface of the city, operating chronological arrangements and historical justifications? These words slowly lose, like worn coins, the value engraved on them, but their ability to signify outlives its first definition. So then he says, uh, the names make themselves available to the diverse meanings given them by passersby. They detach themselves from the places they were supposed to define, and uh, they determine for reasons that are foreign to their original value but may be recognized or not by passersby. Where Deserteau is going with this is that he says that the wearing away of the meanings of these things, like worn coins, essentially creates spaces that can be occupied and repurposed. And Sarah, I thought your analysis of the three different kind of types of performance was really interesting because, you know, the the namings of a residential college after Calhoun or the existence of a Confederate statue provides in this moment the opportunity to perform contestation, to sort of enact a phase in a social drama to say, this is the moment when we're not going to have this thing anymore. And maybe none of us noticed it before, but now's the moment when it's gone. So I just, I I would stop somewhere short of saying we are going to cleanse ourselves as a nation of all civic symbolic objects that don't live up to certain values that some portion of the public agrees with. But I also think that there's something really useful and valuable about being able to say, this is the moment when we take this thing down. This is the moment when we say no more of this. I think for myself, I'm a little more comfortable with taking down some of the monuments. And and I would draw a distinction between street names, right, which seems to live in a linguistic sphere versus some of these physical objects and monuments, particularly when they embody people people who are in fact larger than the humans that surround them and are yeah and one maybe could could split hairs in terms of proximity and visibility and and prominence i think the the larger question that harvey raises and that you're sort of thinking about also panel is this question of when does an act of recognition serve as history or veneration 
and when does it serve as as a kind of uh, revisionist or counter history, right, or, or counterfactual historical narrative, and you know, I mean, I really appreciated all the the various historians, including theater historians, who you know suddenly were like submitting, you know, the, like this is how we understand history, like submitting. Well, we need budgets so that we can erect more, you know, statues so that we can understand, you know, theater history, right? This idea of somehow that uh, that act of creation. So I, you know, I, I I take your point. It's it's it it feels you know, particularly in this current moment, a bit anxiety provoking to imagine a, a, a committee coming up with rules <laughs> whereby certain public objects and icons are systematically removed when they violate the committee rules or they violate certain rules. Uh, at the same time, I take very seriously, you know, what it would feel like to encounter a larger than life statue that that it serves predominantly for a kind of veneration of uh, of slavery or was built in this you know i've been really reading a lot about uh, various historians, uh, you know, who have been sort of talking about when these, you know, when a lot of these statues were erected, like uh, you know, Sarah Beatum, and some of these these kind of questions about their creation and yeah, yeah. It, it's it's challenging in that um, on the one hand, it's a bit less difficult when thinking about monuments to the Confederacy um, because we know that you know, they begin to emerge uh, in the 1930s and a little bit later, right? You know, as a way of of you know, rewriting the history of the South um, is a reimagining um, uh, a sense of what the South was pre-Civil War, um, but then also working as a way to support a campaign against civil rights, right? So, so we know that, and 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 since its its appearance had a political aim uh, to work against sort of racial integration and equality, like. It's you know, and it arrives so much later, you know, essentially independent, you know, of any sort of effort to memorialize the war itself. Um, that makes it easier to go away, you know. But then you have those things where you have um, uh, monuments or or buildings named after like Woodrow Wilson, right? You know, who uh, was sort of outspoken um, in terms of racial prejudice uh, against mm-hmm. African Americans. And so, what so what do you do in those cases, right? Uh, and mm-hmm. and that's a challenge, and I don't know really what the answer is. I mean, as the as a sort of a cultural historian, my my gut feeling is that I don't believe in erasure, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I like the idea of of the sedimentation of history, where like um, it's like you know how these things get repurposed, but also there's a way in which like how other monuments that get erected next to older monuments, you know, you know, sort of change the narrative, right? So I'm thinking about uh, uh, in. You know, outside of Westminster Abbey, across the street from it, there's a, a you know, in London, there's a series of, of uh, statues, uh, and one of the more recently erected ones was of Mandela, right? Uh, you know, and and that is just like the the thing that your picture taken with right now, <laughs> right? Uh, mm-hmm. you know, and, and and I think about that, or like in the case of Harvard's Law School, I think it's Harvard Law School, you know, where there's a little small plaque that was, I don't know, put on a rock or something, you know, that talked about how you know the money that was a that enabled the founding of Harvard Law School uh, was built upon essentially the exploitation of slaves. Um, I'm not sure how successful that one is, (laughs) you know, but is there a way Mm -hmm. in which uh, not the erasure of monuments, but the creation of new ones uh, begins to shift the narrative? Yeah, I think that's a positive thing. I think in a way what's happening now is kind of ideal, which is that it's not some policy, but individual cities, individual universities are saying, okay, for our community, this is wrong. Like, we're not going to have this thing here anymore. 
we're going to ship it off to a museum. I mean, that's what they're doing in St. Louis is they're trying to, they negotiated to try to find a place where it could be seen, you know, but that it's, it's a kind of community deciding that that's not the way they want to understand their, their history anymore. I will say that I had an interesting monument experience recently with, um, there's, there's a monument to mother Jones, the early 20th century hell raising union activist and it's in Mount Olive, Illinois, this very little town in southern Illinois. And it's striking. It's in the middle of the Union Miners Cemetery, and it is like a war memorial. And the language of it is in the rhetoric of martyrdom. There's a list of Union miners who were killed in the the Verdant Riot of, eight, of 1898. They're described as, as martyrs, and it's a highly militaristic monument. Part of what part of what that showed me was that it's not just a sort of history. I mean, you have, there are valences and sort of political valences and value valences that are attached to those things. You're not supposed to go to one of these monuments and feel like, oh, how is, how interesting isn't, is it that there was a civil war? You're supposed to look up to this thing literally and feel the, the virtues that it is supposed to symbolize. And so that's why these things I don't think could be just left alone. Uh, by the way, uh, Sarah Beatum, if that is in fact how she pronounces her name, maybe it's Beatum, is a, a lecturer in American art and material culture uh, at Pennsylvania uh, Academy of the Fine Arts. Our third topic, <laughs> perhaps a little bit lighter, um, is TAPS TV. One of our listeners, I think it was Alex Rip, is that right, suggested that He's currently we talk down in North Carolina. I currently believe. in North yeah, Carolina. Yeah, I think she's a postdoctoral fellow at, uh, at UNC Chapel Hill. Yeah. Um, uh, suggested that we talk about our favorite television shows. So we have been brainstorming TV shows that we like that might have a good theater and performance studies angle. Sarah, do you want to start us off? What have you been watching that's been getting your, your wheels turning? Sure. So uh, I actually have to thank two people for this recommendation. The first <laughs> is Scott Mogelson, uh, who, when we were talking back in the spring, mentioned that the uh, pilot episode or the first episode of Westworld uh, included a quote from Gertrude Stein, which in fact it it does, although it's the rose is a rose, three repetitions, not four, as was originally published. Um, <laughs> if you're keeping score. very good note. Um, good note. But the other is uh, is I was reminded of this again over the summer when attending a talk uh, at ACLA by Christopher Grobe of Amherst College, um, who was talking. It was in a context of a seminar about performing machines, and he was talking about. Uh, Westworld and its engagement with acting and its re- re- reliance on acting theory, the sort of, if you've seen that show, the reveries, right, is emotional sense memory is essentially fueling uh, AI uh, development and, and authenticity in, in human exchange by the robots, is, as well as a very cogent critique of bot face, um, which is uh, Chris's... Uh, uh, word so so I'm so that sort of got me looking at the at the at, at the at the show and I'm sure they both have m- many more s- much smarter things to say about it than I do um, but I really do appreciate the way in which uh, Westworld seems to be a, a a kind of meta theatrical engagement um, uh, predominantly I would say through through the acting uh, particularly Stanislavski kind of mode of, of method acting and, and, and memory and dreams as fueling uh, authenticity in performance exchanges, um, but, but also a literary one. So the, the show really loves quoting Shakespeare. Hmm. Um, and this would be the, 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 the 
taps in the Academy overlap, a lot of it comes from a, a character who is first presented to us as uh, the father of, of one of the central characters, Dolores, and her father, Peter Abernathy. But in fact, the father starts saying all of these things um, uh, that are that are really strange and that actually go back to his role, right? So in a previous uh, narrative, uh, uh, as the professor in a in a horror narrative called the Dinner Party, which immediately for me sounds like you know Elliot's the cocktail party, you know, but like where everyone like turns into cannibals or something. So it's uh, which is probably what it was. So there's this kind <laughs> of um, and and the wonderful thing about nearly all of the quotes, including all the Shakespeare quotes, is that they're almost all. Um, what, what I think most Shakespeareans would think of as wrong to their original intention, right? They're all misreads of, mm-hmm. of Shakespeare in one way or another, right? So the, the most significant one of these is, you know, that gets repeated a lot is these violent delights have violent ends from mm-hmm. Romeo and Juliet, um, which in the original context, right, you know, means that like, that these things kind of start and stop suddenly, and there's a kind of temporality to it, as, as I understand it in the in the original, right? That like sort of like the the sort of rushing around is going to come, whereas you know in the context of Westworld, it's like you know explicitly blood and guts and gore and mm-hmm. and 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 sexual excesses are going to have blood and guts and gore and sexual excesses as 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 consequences, um, yeah. and tying it more into technology. So I've I've found there's a lot of very fun things to to kind of dig into and 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 see in that in that show. I think I watched like the first five or six episodes, and it sort of lost me. I felt like it was going into ways. I don't know. I, I I'm not I'm not very good at hanging in there with with prestige dramas sometimes, but that that really lifts out a lot of the sort of critical issues that that I that I was missing. Of course, there's the idea that this sort of you know Westworld is this extremely elaborate. Uh, it's a theme park. It's a place where you visit, and there are actors. But, you know, you can kill the actors, you can have sex with the actors, the actors are all robots, you can do all sorts of hedonistic and evil things to them because they just seem like real people, they seem like people, but they're not. And in a way that seems to tie into a kind of, I mean, a, a cruel version of an of a line of anti-theatrical thinking, which is that actors are sort of debased, they're sort of available. Uh, I was just reading, I'm reading Montesquieu for a current research project. And he's one of these 18th century French figures who talked about how, or in his correspondence, there's comments about how actresses who charm us on stage charm us also in the dressing room. So there's, in a way, it's sort of tying into a way that people have thought about actors in the past, right? Oh, absolutely. I mean, as well as like, uh, you know, a kind of like platonic continuation of worries about acting, right? That you are what you perform. And that if you repeat the same, you know, certain kinds of behaviors too often and over and over again, even in the context of pretense, that you will lose your sense of uh, of the outside and, and of quote unquote reality. I mean, so there's a lot of, you know, tension between authenticity and, and imitation and what that does to, to somebody in this context a, a lot. Yeah, I mean, it, yeah. Uh, for me, and I, I, I do not really watch pretty much any TV. <laughs> um, uh, I just, when I, when I have downtime, I, I tend to watch movies instead. Uh, but I was in a really long mostly fl- foreign films, m- m- right? In black and white, is that right? Ab- absolutely. <laughs> or, or as my son will say, um, when I when I talk about going to the drive-in, he'll say, "Oh, were they in black and white those pictures?" <laughs> you know. Like, um, <laughs> nice. But um, you know, but I had a long flight recently, so I watched the first, I guess, three or four episodes of Westworld, 
Um, and it, what, what it reminded me of, and this is prompted in many ways by Elizabeth Hunter, who's one of my uh, graduate advisees uh, who's finishing this year. So she's in the market, Elizabeth Hunter, she's fantastic. Uh, and what Elizabeth is doing is she's writing a dissertation on immersive spectatorship, like looking at you know, punch drunk, sleep no more, you know, looking at even, you know, how places like the Old Globe, you know, in their effort to sort of stage ritual practices, you know, is also encouraging a form of um, audience interaction uh, and in many ways forced audience interaction, right? Whereas like in Shakespeare Day, you could sit down, you know, now you can't sit down <laughs> at, the, at, the, at the new Old Globe, mm-hmm. you know, or the donkey show at ART, you know, and, it, and, and thinking about Elizabeth's work and also looking at these episodes of Westworld, you know, it, it did make me uh, think about this sort of trend within contemporary uh, theater productions, you know, for more site-specific, more immersive, more uh, interactive uh, ways of audiencing, mm-hmm. you know, and I thought that was worth considering because it's like in many ways, you know, that excitement and the voyeurism and the uh, chance to play a role uh, that these live productions give us is being mirrored uh, in Westworld. Yeah, but there's also critique there, right? Like, you know, like the consumerist uh, drive to play out fantasy in a way that's kind of unchecked from the rules of reality, you know, which is taken to an extreme in Westworld is hinted at in some of these productions such as you know, Sleep No More where you, you know, wear the mask and you're supposed to become a little bit less inhibited in terms of being able to explore mm-hmm. the space. So that's what, that's what I thought about as I was sitting watching Westworld recently. And I, and I this is not a TV show, but I recently saw It, you know, Stephen King's It, and, and what I nice. learned from that is that clowns are not always happy. <laughs> yeah, they're not. Um, no, I, I, I give. As an aside, I will give it a thumbs up. But let me let me throw. Um, you guys are braver throw, than me. I like. There is no way I'm seeing that. Actually, I've, I've I've been in a uh, mock serious debate with a, a friend of mine, listener to the show, Jeff Awada, who is a, a teaches movement at Webster University and is a clown and teaches clown workshops about the the clown communities protests about it and and there's been a long we're trying to get to the bottom of the question of when the clown became when the scary clown became a, a, a cliche uh, and why but let me we're, we're running long I, I really want to get my my little tv example in so the show that i picked was orphan black this is a canadian sci-fi show that I think it just finished its run of five seasons uh, in August, if I'm not mistaken. And the show is brilliant. It's based on a brilliant premise, which is that in, in the first episode, a young woman named Sarah Manning comes upon her doppelganger, a woman who looks exactly like her, and then watches her uh, kill herself by walking in front of a train. She then picks up her purse. She goes to this woman's apartment and begins to realize that she and this young woman are one of an indefinite number of clones that are out there in the world living these whole lives with no idea, uh, in some cases, that they are clones. The sort of central feature, besides the brilliant premise of the of the show, is the performance by Tatiana Maslany, who plays all of the, the Lita clones, they're called. And for the most part, she's playing five different clones, though I think over the course of the show, there were like dozens of them revealed. And so the show is just good on its own merits. It's both, you know, rather realistic and gripping because you can totally see this existing somewhere in the world, but it's also really campy 
in, in places and has a really sort of pronounced uh, queer sensibility. I, I'd argue that some of the clones, they have different sexuality. There's a transgender clone that appears in one of the seasons. And the show, I think I would argue as part of that kind of queer and possibly campy sensibility is quite self-aware of what it's doing and has a lot of fun with um, Tatia Maslany playing all of these different roles that are so distinct. But there are also, you know, plot lines where one clone, you know, the cl- the clones find each other and they cooperate and they are trying to evade and confront these malevolent forces that are out, out to get them. And so they will sometimes impersonate each other. So you'll get to watch Tatiana Maslany playing Allison, who's the super high-strung suburban version of this clone who's impersonating Sarah Manning, who's the streetwise uh, young woman. And it's just great. Like, it's it's extremely smart. As a, as a callback to our first segment, each of the episodes of this show are named, or the names of them are, of the episodes are quotes taken from a different author in every season. And in season four, all the quotes are from Donna Haraway. And Jessica Burson, when you, when you read The Naked Result, she engages in a lot of uh, conversation with, with Donna Haraway's work. So I recommend it. I don't know. Are of you guys fans? It, have you have you seen it? I've never seen it. Oh, I, I love Orphan Black. And there's a lot of, I mean, this is, people are calling it the golden age of television, right? Um, yeah. And uh, I will also put in a, pl- so I, Handmaid's Tale, I think is, is really f- fabulous um mm-hmm. and 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 a number of other of other shows but i also want to just maybe we could talk about this at a, a, pre, a, a forthcoming is sean spicer playing himself <laughs> sort of at the, the emmys, emmys but really sean oh, spicer wow. playing sean spicer is melissa mccarthy played sean spicer i mean there, there's like yeah. regardless of the politics of whether sean spicer should have been allowed to to do that or not and I, there are strong feelings about that but um but just as a kind of exercise in the layers of of performative reality and the negotiating authenticity in a kind of mediated environment i found that just a kind of fascinating moment to to hold mm-hmm. up and think about. I agree. I will also sneak in a plug for um, Sean Spicer or a recommendation for <laughs> no <laughs> for uh, Kimmy Schmidt. The um, oh for sure Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt, which is I'm watching the third season of it now. It's all on Netflix, and it is just it is intimidatingly smart and hilarious and. It's, I think a lot of the same creative team that created 30 Rock is behind Kimmy Schmidt, but it's on Netflix, so it's more like a basic cable sensibility. And it is just, it's wicked. The satire of it is wicked. It's, um, there's a lot of sort of theatrical, you know, references, but um, get up on Kimmy Schmidt if you have not yet. And I also um, really like Crazy Ex-Girlfriend, is the, the, which I had a really hard time getting into, but my students kept raving about it, so I kind of stuck with it long enough, and now I'm... I think I think it's pretty good. Guys, let's do our drafts. Uh, regular listeners to the show know that our drafts are our sort of wrapping up segment, odd ideas or inspirations, um, projects that we might be mulling over but not fully completing. What drafts do we have for our audience this month? Sarah, do you want to start us off? Sure. So I've been thinking, and this this came up in a conversation with Will Lewis. Uh, who is uh, finishing his dissertation at University of Colorado Boulder uh, and is looking at the job market and is writing about um, technogenesis and spectatorship and um, in a number of different kinds of work. And he, you know, we were sort of chatting about uh, about the field and, and when and, and you know, and, and like when fields change, like when these kinds of shifts and 
and we've got a lot of like so such and such turns right the spatial turn the social turn the digital turn and so it just kind of got me thinking like well when i wonder if you could map or study or quantify in some ways when when fields shift in that way and what is it that prompts the shift you know and and i think an interesting example is is thinking about queer theory right where um, it really has to start from inside because people, you know, who is just sort of announcing themselves from the outside, it's hard to get jobs, right? So, uh, so queer theory kind of entered the academy in a number of different ways. Um, I would say something similar with performance studies, you know, which positioned itself somewhat oppositionally, but eventually kind of worked out a, you know, detente in some instances, but, you know, something more robust and integrated in others. Um, and so I'm just kind of, you know, I mean, myself sort of privileging the digital and, and thinking about intersections of various kinds of media and technological history. And as they, you know, intersect with theater and performance studies, you know, wondering like what, when does a field turn? How do you know it has turned? Um, mm-hmm. If you wanted to turn it, how would you uh, foment, you know, that mm-hmm. kind of a that kind of a shift? And And are there certain circumstances that make it more favorable at one time or another? But I've just been thinking about that. Harvey, what's your draft? Uh, my draft is uh, based on thinking about, it's actually a series of talks that I have to give um, coming up, and it's part of a series I've been giving for a while now. Uh, and they're all on the displays of dead black bodies, just kind of this unending kind of assault of the images where it's like, where they blur into one another, where it's like Trayvon Martin becomes... Um, Michael Brown, who becomes you know um, a series of other people, uh, and it's just that process of continually revisiting these images, but also continually uh, talking about these images as well. And it's you know, and it's just while I realize the urgency and the importance of 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 keeping names available and uh, out there to be recognized and to be remembered. Um, you know, to become monumentalized in a way, I guess you might say, and memorialized. Mm-hmm. You know, there is there is a draining factor of it, right? So it's like it takes you know, with with, with each upcoming talk, uh, you know, there's there's this need to just try to find some sort of well of energy somewhere uh, to mm-hmm. you know, turn and and revise it so that the talk isn't the same talk that I've given previously. Um, you know, but then have that energy just to revisit the stuff again anew. You know, for each event, so that's what's going on right right now. Just trying to find out, trying to find the motivation to kind of go back into this. Yeah, um, we're in the midst of um, some protests in St. Louis about the result of a trial against a police officer who murdered a black man in, in St. Louis, and there's a you can feel you can uh, when you're out there you can feel people's motivation and sense of community, but there is also a kind of grind to it that everyone is facing um my draft is so much dumber than either of your drafts um but there's it's not research there's just something that has been a a little part of my life for a while that the on tap audience will be uniquely able to appreciate so years ago i did some research for uh, the playwright david henry huang uh you know who wrote in butterfly and and his actually in butterfly is about to be revived on broadway directed by julie taymor so i was thinking of him so i i had emailed with him and for some reason my phone has swapped his name with my aunt Susie's email address. What this means is that anytime I receive an email from my aunt Susie, it says David Henry Huang. And so periodically, and this has been the case for like 
this has been the case for like five or six years. You know, I'll pull my phone out. I'll, I'll check to see if I have new emails. And it's like David Henry Huang's name at the top of my email. I'm like, ooh, whoa, David wants to talk to me. And the subject line is like picnic at the park or does Willa like radishes? That's the name <laughs> of my one-year-old daughter. And so the, there is the, what I love about this is just the total strangeness of it. Like they're, my aunt's name and David's name have nothing in common at all, at all. There, it's as if you took the two most random people in my contact list and just switched them. But it means that David is a continual presence in my life in a very strange way. And I, I hope it goes on forever. I really, I, I love it. Have you tried switching it back and it, it just reverts to this? this I would is never how switch. your phone I would, wants I would, to see? I would never switch it back. Why would oh, I okay. not? Why would I, why would I want this to end? Actually, I don't know. I haven't even looked into it. I mean, when you, when you search... When I search my aunt's name in the search bar at the top of my iPhone email app, it, the, the result that comes up is David Henry Huang. And then all the emails from her are just attributed to his name for no, no reason at all. Well, wait, I mean, you might want to email him and apologize for all the family photos you sent him. no i do love to i do love the idea part of it is the fun of the the idea that he is in on these group emails with my mother and my grandmother and my aunts about like grandkids and stuff and it's just david hanging out you know uh harvey sarah thank you as always um uh listeners we have an on tap special we believe is headed your way that you guys will be excited about so check your podcast feeds for that um and we'll talk to you very soon bye-bye thanks panel Bye, guys. On Tap is supported by the Performing Arts Department at Washington University in St. Louis and its master's program in theater and performance studies. You can find us on the web at ontappod.com. Email us at hosts at ontappod.com. You can find us on Facebook, search for On Tap, and on Twitter at ontappodcast.